What happens when a blind man, a woman of color, and a child of immigrants get together to discuss how diversity, inclusion, and equity affect your business? Hi everybody, welcome to the Choose Inclusion podcast. I'm UB, and I am the Latino white guy of the group. I'm Nina, I am the woman of color in the group. And I'm Mike, I'm uh, the blind guy. Hey everybody, welcome back to Choose Inclusion. This is Yubi and I'm here as always with Nina and Mike. Hello team. Hey everyone. Hey, welcome back. So we're excited. We're, um, we're talking with uh, Tina Lee. So she is head of the Ambassador Network for an organization called Hostwriter. And what's really exciting about this conversation is, is um, Hostwriter represents journalists all over the world and they have a book um, called Unbiased the News that tells stories of, of journalists from all different backgrounds across borders. It's very collaborative and we, we really believe like this conversation specifically, you know, especially now, right, is very pertinent to how organizations overall can better communicate and build better, more inclusive workplaces through conscious communication. So, uh, Tina, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Yes, thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about you, because you, you, you know, you're American, but you live in Germany. What's, what's your background? How did you end up there? How did you end up at Hostwriter? Right. Well, um, yeah, I originally lived in the United States. I went to law school there, and I graduated right during the financial crisis. So um, it was not a good time to be a law school graduate. And what I was really interested in was migration and particularly um, undocumented migrant rights in the United States, which has become, again, like a super relevant topic now because of the fact that the coronavirus has hit so many um, industries where undocumented migrants are working. But I decided to get some background. It would be good to go to Europe and um, figure out what was going on with the burgeoning refugee and migration crisis that was going on there, which has been like the last five years dominated the news here completely. And um, when I came to Europe and studied international law and international relations, I started working at some nonprofits. And a lot of my work ended up being kind of journalisty background research and uh, writing small reports on things. So I started to um, yeah, do a little bit of journalism here and there with that. And when I got the chance to work at Hostwriter, it just really brought a lot of things together for me because it was um, an organization that promotes cross-border journalism especially focused on people from the developing world having a chance to have their voices heard in international journalism, but especially for people to um, use their knowledge and write together to improve the kind of reporting that we have. And that really rings true to me because so much of the problems of the kind of uh, prejudices that we have about other countries, the solutions that we tend to come up with for certain problems are, back, are based on really um, limited information that's sometimes really prejudiced. And what you, what you find out when you work together with journalists from other countries is that they have a lot of good ideas that are not making it through to the Western media at all. Um, or they have solutions for problems that we don't even see. So I find it really gratifying to be in touch with all these like completely badass people from all over the world that yeah. are doing really interesting investigations and have amazing ideas. Um, but on top of that, 
after a little bit of working there and um, us kind of building on this model that we already have, and we're also sort of a startup and we try to um, be, you know, we're a women-led startup and we also wanted more diversity within our group. We recognize that um, one of the issues that we have is that we're so part of the bias that we don't always even see it. So for instance, and this is kind of the genesis of the book, we decided to have a conference and bring all of our brand ambassadors, like the people who represent Hostwriter all over the world. And we have um, about 30 of those people from places like Madagascar, the Philippines, Nigeria, as well as from European countries like Hungary and um, Austria. And we wanted to bring them together to a conference in Poland so that they could meet and they could exchange and we could do some trainings on cross-border journalism. And we were really excited about it. And so I was putting this together. And um, so we had to do all these visas and we fought and fought and fought to get visas for everybody. And it was such a complete hassle. I couldn't believe it. Like the woman um, that we wanted to bring from Iran got rejected totally. The reason that the European Union gave for rejecting it is that she wasn't married. So you think of Iran as being a place that wow. has a sort of sexist um, or patriarchal society, but this woman, because she wasn't married, was considered a risk for permanently migrating to the EU, so they didn't want to give her a visa. Wow. Yeah. And similarly, we brought this um, journalist from India, and the day that he's leaving, when the conference is over, when I'm like finally like putting my feet up, like, okay, everybody made it, the conference went fine. He calls me from the airport and he says, they're not letting me get on the airplane. And I'm like, excuse me, what's going on now? So he says, yeah, they're not letting me go. So I go to the airport and I go, excuse me, what is wrong? Why aren't you letting this person onto the airplane? And they go, well, he um, doesn't have a visa for Britain. And I say, well, he's not going to Britain. He's yeah. flying back to India and he's flying through Britain. He doesn't need a visa for Britain. He has a Schengen visa through, for the EU. And they go, no, right. to walk through the airport, he needs to have a visa. Oh, my gosh. So I said, you weren't going to tell, no one told us throughout this whole process that we needed to apply for a separate complete visa just to let, by the way, someone from India, the country that was colonized by Britain, right. walk oh. through the airport. <laughs> and so I'm telling this to other people and I'm like, can you believe these British people? Like, what gall? How amazing is that story? And someone goes, well, you know, when I fly to America, I have the same deal. Yeah. So someone flying to Canada that goes through America also has to get a visa for the United States. And I wasn't even aware of that because as an American, I can fly pretty much anywhere. I never have any problem to go places. But what does that also mean for me as a reporter? If I want to fly almost anywhere in the world to do a story, I can. But if someone from another country wants to fly to my country to do a story, they have to get a visa, they have to jump through hoops, they have to pay money, and they might not even get a visa at all. Doesn't that already affect what kind of reporting that we can do if I can go to your country, but you can't go to mine? And we saw Slightly. that this limit, we didn't even see because us in this um, uh, room, you know, we were Germans, we're uh, Europeans, we're Americans, that wasn't even an issue for us. So of course we didn't even see it before it was invisible to us. Yeah. So we started to think, what other kinds of issues are affecting the kind of journalism that's out there that are issues that are invisible to people who don't belong to those groups or don't have that background. And that's how we came up with the idea for the book. I love it. The, there, there's so much about, we talk here in the podcast, Tina, and I am so thrilled to have you be part of this. So thank you for carving out some time. 
um, and chatting with us today. So well, we talk so much about the, the term, you know, white male privilege. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, we talk about that, but that, that same concept can be extended to, as what you're saying, uh, just plain old, dependent on your vocation, uh, American privilege or European privilege. Like there's, there are these unspoken privileges that quite honestly, uh, we're not even aware of. Exactly. And that's the whole point is that I would have never been like, oh, I have visa privilege. You know, that's just something that didn't even occur to me before. It only became clear to me when I was trying to arrange for other people to get visas. Oh, wait, this could be an actual issue if you want to do a story. I mean, think of all the stories in Europe over the last couple of years about migration. You see constantly people who go to Libya or to um, Lebanon or Turkey to report on the story from that angle. But if someone wanted to come from Lebanon or Syria or anywhere else to actually report on a story, what's happening to the people that migrated, they couldn't get a visa. And that actually ended up being a um, real issue for a Syrian um, guy who was awarded a huge award by the British press for this amazing work that he had done as a war correspondent on the war, risking his life and reporting um, to the British public about what was going on in the war in Syria. And when he wanted to come accept the award in Britain, his visa was denied. Hmm. Wow. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and it's just, this is mind blowing. And what's interesting to me are the parallels here um, of what's happening. So, you know, we, uh, like everybody's kind of mentioned, we, we focus on business, you know, diversity and inclusion in business. And the, the parallels are are striking. And I think what's, What's cool about the journalism industry is is that it can it can absolutely be a very visual or visible um, example of how organizations can you know are behaving and, and can maybe better behave too right and and especially from a communication standpoint and giving everybody voices within their organization I mean that's kind of what we're talking about here at, at a global level and the literal level is you know, we're seeing these people not be able to use their voice to talk about their own country and what's happening there in many instances, because, you know, the sort of the baseline, you know, privileged layers is, is not allowing them to, to do that, to come across the border, to, to, to even be honored. I mean, that's just fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think that the thing is also that there's, um, there's these borders of uh, nationality that we see, but there's really a lot of other kind of borders that exist too. And I think from a business perspective, if you look at the Me Too movement, that's where you can see some real parallels as well. That the um, reporting that was done that exposed the Me Too movement, which was done by reporters, often targeted newsrooms where the women were the ones that were also being sexually harassed. And this kind of um, continuous level of sidelining women and putting them in positions where they um, feel threatened or can't do their best work also means that women don't do their best work, right? You lost out on a lot of perspectives. You lost out on a lot of um, maybe great stories, but also how did that affect how reporting on sexual assault and sexual harassment was done over the last five years or 10 years? I mean, I think that um, the book Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow shows that while NBC was deciding whether or not to release information about uh, President Trump claiming to have sexually assaulted women on tape, um, while they were deliberating that decision, they themselves were dealing with numerous sexual assault allegations that they had uh, tried to suppress going on within their 
own company. So that bias really affected the kind of way that they told the story. And I think that that is um, the way where it also applies to business is that when we talk about why diversity matters for journalism, we're not talking about it as like a fairness thing or as a political correctness thing. We're talking about how it affects the stories, how you get less accurate stories if you don't have diversity because people can't fact check you. Well, if I, sorry, go ahead. No, so I mean, I think it's really interesting because then you're also bringing up this element of power dynamics, right? right. Like who, who's in power and gets to make these choices and then who's behind the scenes trying to elevate the stories of people who are you know, not being heard, who, who are the people that are underrepresented or unrepresented that that's voices are, are getting lost. And I think it's, it, it kind of is interesting when you were telling us about the, the concept of fixers before we uh, started recording. And um, I was wondering if you could explain to our audience about um, kind of the, the behind the scenes of how international journalism happens and how it integrates with um, how you, the, the, the Tom Brokaw faces in the front are actually a lot of other things in the back. I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that a little bit and let our listeners know about that. Absolutely. So in the United States and to a certain extent in Europe, um, the kind of journalism that we're used to seeing is this kind of um, man with a microphone, right? You see a guy maybe wearing a helmet or like some gear and he's standing in front of a camera and he's like, you know, pointing to a battlefield behind him or he's behind rebel territory or whatever. And it's always a man. It's often a white man. And um, this is, you know, this kind of journalism that we all trust. Like, I'm here on the ground so I can tell you what's really going on. And what's actually going on is that it's not just this one person, right, who's there by himself. He's there with a team. And not only that, is there a team of researchers back at home who have done all the research for every step of the trip, who've set up hotel rooms, who've set up, you know, helicopter rides, who've done all the research. That's often younger people, often women. and when he gets there, that person and his team will often collaborate with someone called a fixer. And the fixer is just another word for basically a local journalist who fixes the um, setup for you. So they might be a combination of a driver, translator, and someone that helps you to find the most interesting people to interview, um, helps you identify locations where interesting things are going on. And a lot of people work in this field in addition to their actual job. So one of the um, articles from our book is by a Croatian fixer. And she talks about, her name is Jelena Pedric. She talks about how um, people come all the time to Croatia and they want one of two stories. They want Game of Thrones or they want um, Balkan nationalism, Balkan war Nazis. So she's trying to find people for these guys to interview to tell the same story that they've been telling over and over again about the lingering effects of nationalism. And so she finally finds like a real nasty nationalist guy that they can talk to. And they're like, yeah, but can't you find someone a little bit more attractive? Oh, God. And so this is, an ex- this is called an example of what is referred to um, pejoratively as parachute journalism, which is where I parachute into a country snatch up any person I can speak to on the street to um, fulfill my interviews, quickly report the story and then leave again without taking the time to get really a deep context of the, inf- of the uh, situation, without talking to a whole range of experts and without um, becoming really aware of what's going on. And that is a kind of journalism that we're really against. And the thing that we suggest on the other hand of that is 
collab collaboration, like actually collaborate with local journalists who can give you the context. Don't just use them as translators, use them as co-authors, write the stories together with them because you're going to get a much better story. And the, the problem with, um, with parachute journalism is it's lazy in a way and that allows people to really um, repeat stereotypes and repeat the same story over and over again. Maybe that's the story that you think your audience is going to be the most interested in. Uh, War-torn, starving Africa or um, you know, China with like censorship and uh, all sorts of problems or America with, uh, you know, obsession with Donald Trump and, um, you know, angry white men yelling and wearing MAGA hats or whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> you can get much more nuanced stories if you uh, spend a little bit of time and not being able to spend a little time because not everybody can should collaborate with someone who's from there and knows about those ideas. I mean, there's this kind of two angles of sidelining people of color, sidelining people from different countries in the media. The one angle is the personal tragedy for them, that they can't see their voices represented, that they can't tell their stories. But then there's the tragedy for everybody else, which is that they miss accuracy, they miss nuance, they miss context. They don't get the accurate view of what's actually going on. They get the view of the common denominator, which is the older white man who maybe didn't take a lot of time to inform himself about what's going on, or maybe just has a different view. And maybe his view isn't inaccurate, but maybe his view is just different than the other views that are out there. And you deserve to be exposed to a range of views, not just one, right? I, this is, uh, we're, so we're, we're, we're doing the longest podcast we've ever done. We're going for six straight hours today, Tina. So thank you for, uh, yeah. Uh, load up on the energy drinks. We're we're on our way. I uh, so and being, we haven't even gotten into the disability part yet. We're like we could just yeah, spend well, all this time talking about race and power dynamics. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm about to hit it, you know. I'm about to hit it. So my oh, I know uh, you are, Mike. Go for it. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> I'm on my way. We uh. So I so being the blind guy and being blind my entire life, like I I I do have kind of a um, uh, it, you know my my viewpoint and one of the true advantages that I believe I have as a blind person. Um, I, uh, the book, <laughs> as we talked about before, if, if I could, if I could learn to spell, I, I, I got a book that, uh, I always want to, I wanted to write and it's called traveling the world one Uber driver at a time, because I get into Ubers, um, you know, between planes and Ubers. I, uh, you know, I go all over the country here in the United States uh, North America mostly, and and I, I get between planes, I get to the Uber stand, and I, I catch an Uber, and so many of my Uber drivers, I hear an accent, and being the blind guy, like, I never get in trouble for profiling, so if I, I hear an accent, I'm like, <laughs> hey, where are you from, right, like, it's an advantage of being a blind guy, because I'm not profiling, they don't look at me as somebody who's profiling, because I'm asking them where they're from, and I'm saying, oh, I hear an accent, Tell, talk to me about, and I've, you know, I've had um, here in the United States, we get spoon fed information about other countries, whether it's right. Lebanon or Iran or Afghanistan or Iraq. And I get all these um, uh, amazing uh, Uber drivers and I hear the accent. I'm like, hey, tell me about your country. Right. Because yeah. we, we hear we hear about these countries from an American media perspective and everybody there is they're terrorists they're this they're that and yet you know i'm in i'm trusting my life 
to a driver, right? And, and I'm like, ah, oh, talk to me about your beautiful country and the perspectives that I get. So kind of like what you're talking about, like from a journalism perspective, people are missing those perspectives because they're using their, like, can we find somebody who's better looking? Can we find somebody who's, who thinks like I do? We're missing those perspectives because we're just like afraid to ask, like, hey, talk to me about your country. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Is, is that fairly accurate? Yeah. And the other thing that happens with that, and I think, um, you know, it, it can relate to business in some respects as well, is that sometimes, of course, like every country has their problems. America has a lot of problems too, right? <laughs> but it doesn't mean that there aren't really innovative and interesting things going on there. And there's this whole field now called solutions journalism, which is a field of journalism that looks to solve problems by looking at other people who have approach certain problems and solve them, right? So this could be anything hmm. from, you know, um, water shortages, what have other countries done with that, to lead paint poisoning, what cities have done a good job on solving lead, point uh, lead paint poisoning issues, you know, really anything you can think of, all the way down to COVID-19, who's doing the best, uh, who's, you know, approaching that in the best way. And when one whole part of the world for us is like washed out as something where we can't trust anything coming from those countries because they're war-torn or they're backwards or they're whatever. Think about what else we're missing is all of the solutions, all of the innovations that are going on in those places. And the unfortunate thing is, is that for most people, unless they travel to those places themselves, they will always have a certain view in their mind. I went to India this summer for the first time. And when I was um, talking to people in the United States, about you know where I was gonna go, they were all like, oh, you're gonna be so shocked, you're gonna be so shocked, it's so um, impoverished, it's so filthy, you're, just, you're gonna be in shock the whole time. And I got there, I have to say, I was like, I've been in places in America that are as dirty as this. <laughs> like, it's not, this is not uh, something that's very shocking to me. And there were a lot of things about it that were, um, that were surprising in positive ways, like, oh, this is so much better food than I expected. <laughs> this is so much greener than I expected. It's so, so many more interesting people. So um, I realized that people had gotten this stereotype of India, I think, from watching the same kind of three films over and over again about, um, you know, someone driving through a crowded city in India or something like that and seeing the same place. But it's a huge country. It has a lot of different aspects to it. So most people don't necessarily have the chance to travel every single place and uh, take away their uh, different ideas of what that place might be, their preconceived notions, but they get that information from the media. And when we let Americans tell the stories over and over again about those places, they also bring their stereotypes about it, right? And they don't yep. always, um, they don't have the chance always to get rid of them, even if they go there. What are some examples? Uh, of, sorry, God. <laughs> no, no. I, I was going to ask, what are some examples of the those publications that practice solution journalism? Because that, that's you know, I mean, we're we always talk about action. Like we want to get to the point of helping organizations like take action, like actually do something, right? Like here's a tangible takeaway that you can actually go do. And and that's that's what this sounds like, and I, I love uh, I love that. But what are some examples of publications like that that focus well, on the that? The best place I would urge you to go look is just called the Solutions Journalism Network, which is run, if I'm not mistaken, by Tina Rosenberg, 
And there they collect examples of solutions journalism from all over the United States and all over the world. And a lot of newspapers um, are starting to have like a section that will have solutions journalism in it or um, have something like a newsletter about it or something like that. So it's becoming a much more widely practiced form of journalism. Another form of journalism that we really push, which can connect to solutions journalism, is cross-border collaborative journalism. And if you think about the Panama Papers, you guys um, know what that is? Uh, explain it to our viewers, our listeners. Yeah, please. <laughs> so there was this giant leak of documents that had all been stored in a place in Panama. Actually, there's a movie on Netflix about it now starring Meryl Streep. And um, <laughs> this huge document dump and what it showed was, is that companies all over the world were engaging in tax evasion by creating offshore companies that were um, basically fake companies, fake trust funds, fake NGOs and nonprofits, and doing this so that they could shuttle money offshore where they didn't have to pay as high taxes. And so they would store those, they would found those fake companies and fake um, trust funds and things like that in places like Panama where they have uh, lax tax laws. And so... This implicated people all over the world, thousands of country companies in the United States and, and, and rich people in the United States were engaging in this practice, but also were people all over Europe. And it was costing countries like the United States and the European Union as well, millions and millions of dollars in taxes. So it's theft more or less. But if one person wanted to cover the story, it would have been really, really difficult because it had so many different angles to it, right? It involved so many different countries. And so you wouldn't even recognize like someone covering the story from Central America might not recognize the name Jeff Bezos or something and really miss out on a big angle of the story, right? <laughs> so they, um, they collaborated together multiple different newsrooms to try and find a bunch of different stories using this one source. So by working together, and comparing the different information they had and sharing it, you know, not being lone wolves, not having the scoop that you hide from all the other people, but working together, they were able to get a lot more stories. And some of these stories that came out toppled governments. I mean, they're really, um, it exposed huge amount of corruption and um, tax fraud all over the world. And there's been numerous other stories like that. I mean, the Snowden leaks are another example, but stories where they're so big. And what we find what we believe also at Hostwriter is that there's a lot of stories that it's impossible to just cover from one country from one angle. If you think about, um, you know, migration, if you just cover it from the country that's sending or the country that's receiving it, you're missing out on part of the story. But also corruption often works in ways where um, the police are evaded from being able to work on corruption because of the fact that it's something that takes place in multiple different countries in multiple different jurisdictions. But journalists can do that work. They can cross borders. They can work together with people from other countries to expose things that the police wouldn't even be able to get to because it's outside of their jurisdiction. So it's, again, trying to use a different mindset where instead of viewing other journalists as my competitor, that I view them as my collaborator. And that when someone has a different view than me, comes from a different background than me, points out that I'm making a mistake or having a bias, that I don't view that as a um, problematic criticism, but I view that as something that improves my writing, improves my storytelling, improves the accuracy of my reporting. And that's a huge, that's a huge mind sh uh, shift to make. I mean, to, uh, from what I understand of journalism, it's a very cutthroat type industry, right? Where 
everyone's fighting for for the best story. I think that's kind of the stereotype you hear in the media <laughs> when you see movies about journalists. Um, yeah, it can be people guarding their. I mean, that's what you have the image of, right? The guy like guarding his sources, right. deep throat. You know, I don't want anyone else to get it up before I can. But yeah, of course, that's one type of journalism. But nowadays, if you look at all of the articles that are coming out that just won Pulitzers or the most of the articles that you see in the New York Times and the Washington Post, it's three or four reporters working on each story, right? It's usually not just one person. So how do we, the, oh gosh, we all have questions. We that was amazing. <laughs> Nina, Nina was first, Nina was first. Thanks for listening to the Choose Inclusion podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can see closed captioning for this podcast on our YouTube channel. You can find us online on our website, chooseinclusion.com, and contact us on Twitter at Choose Inclusion.